You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. I remember being in Australia, and that's when we got like another milestone news for me was, um, do you guys want to go on tour with Slipknot and Lamb of God and do arenas? Which I'd never been on an arena tour before. Yeah. Right. So I remember like, uh, Matt and I were roommates in Australia. We're like, what the fuck? Is <laughs> well, holy shit, we're going to play arenas. <laughs> hey, welcome to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Peza here as always with Siobhan Cronin and Benny Goodman. How goes it? How goes okay. it for you? It goes. <laughs> goes. <laughs> today, today, we uh, we're talking with John Denae of Anthrax, Shadows Fall. This episode's super cool. And Living Wreckage, his new band. Well, yeah, I was gonna I was gonna get to. He's, he announces a new a new project that by the time this comes out should actually. And he was be on Lost Symphony, dude. I was also going to get Corey to that. I was also going to get there's, to that. There's but. a whole bunch of things. John, John is a man of many talents, and uh, we had a we had a great time talking to him about uh, you know growing up and getting into the the metal scene and going you know I think he made it pretty far in the metal scene you know <laughs> headlining festivals with with Anthrax just just a little bit. Right. No, and he really started from like the ground level, so it was cool to hear the progression over time of you know starting in small clubs, forming a band in high school, to playing like massive festivals and stadiums arenas whatever yeah. and it's, done still good. Ver- it's still very humbling knowing because i think there's a lot of people that have a perception that uh, you know rock stars especially at the level that john plays which is a middle to lower upper tier like he plays pretty freaking high uh, level <laughs> and, and, and people don't realize that like it's not the same it's not the same as what you think it is and it's a really really hard life and he's put in every moment of his life to be great at his instrument and to do what he needs to do that when other people had to walk away for financial decisions he's never stopped playing music ever or ever stopped being on the road other than now dude just wants to crack a beer and jam with his bros (laughs) so here it is part one with john denae Ladies and gentlemen, before before my cohort in crime loses her internet connection yet again, my name is Benny Goodman, and welcome to another episode of 2020, where we don't give a fuck about fucking anything, because fuck. And this week, we have, back again, for maybe the 48th or 9th time, uh, Siobhan Cronin. Hey, I promise I'm not going to drop out this time. It's, it's amazing how I live in a huge city and yet I can't get decent internet. Don't like, make, how is that don't make promises you can't keep. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll see. <laughs> and as well as his 49th appearance on the show, maybe <laughs> maybe 63rd or something, Corey Peza. Yeah. Who's counting? Woo! Who's counting, right? <laughs> Cheers. And I am so psyched. I am so psyched about this because this guy is in... Uh, Two legendary, legendary metal bands. He represents uh, the the Massachusetts movement of heavy metal that you know Corey and I uh, grew up loving, 
and he's a super cool dude has fucking toured with everybody he he has a brand new band uh his name is john denay he also played in this little band called lost symphony but you might know him (laughs) from a band called anthrax and from the legendary fucking shadows fall and he has a new band where he's back together with matt from shadows fall which i think is a fantastic idea since you did that on chapter two with lost symphony how are you john i'm doing good yeah, I feel bad. Like I, I was uh, been watching your episode. You have all these cool people on. Now you got to talk to me. Feel bad. <laughs> no, you seem to have a super cool story. I'm really excited. Don't downplay yourself. This is going to be great. Uh, that's just that Massachusetts wit. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for being here, man. Uh, I guess we'll start. It's just what's going on with you? What What are you doing in uh, in 2021? So uh, yeah, this has been the longest. I've ever gone in my life without, well, since I've been 14 playing a show. Um, it's been a hard year. It's been crazy. And, uh, uh, the last anthrax show was in November of, of, uh, 2019. Wow. Yeah. And and then, you know, we were supposed to go to Japan, uh, last March and that's when all this hit. And, uh, you know, I just, I didn't see it coming at all. And, you know, uh, it's been a pretty scary year, but uh, what's kept me busy is starting a new band called Living Wreckage, and I uh, started that with Matt from Shadows Fall. And uh, it's been a while since, uh, I mean, the last Shadows Fall record was, I want to say 2012, maybe. So uh, this is the first time I've had a long time to just really write and not have anything in the way and record. So uh, that's that's pretty much uh, saved me from going absolutely crazy. Yeah, what's what's uh, I, you know we've talked to a few people that literally pretty much have lived on the road for the past like decade or more, and then all of a sudden it's like you're home, <laughs> and that's what you're doing. Like, how has that been for you, just as, as a lifestyle? Yeah, it's been like I said, it's been really hard because I'm always ready, or I usually have something lined up. You know, even if you know you have a, a few months off, you know, well. In a few months, I'm, I'm going into the studio to do something mm-hmm. or going up back on the road. Uh, Anthrax is constantly busy since I've been playing with them for eight years and not a lot of time off, you know. So for this, it's, it's, been like, it's my life. It's like everything, the, the carpet got ripped out from under me and, and it's just, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> right. How does it feel like being creative or, or writing when you have so much time? Because I find for me, it's like it's the opposite. The more time I have, the harder time I have to create something new because I get inspired by the busyness and all the different shows and seeing things. And I feel like it's so hard when you're just at home, not traveling. Yeah, I, but maybe it's opposite for you. I don't know. Yeah. For, for, for me, it's opposite because on the road, I don't play so much because sometimes you just feel like you're getting in the way of people. You don't really have that much privacy on the road. Um, sure. so you, you don't want to crank an app and, and <laughs> bore the guy or annoy the guy next to you. who's trying to watch a movie or something. So, um, I don't necessarily play so much on the road, but at home, you know, when I'm by myself, that's when, uh, the creativity starts to flow. And, uh, it was, I find it easier to get things done without anything else getting in the way. And, uh, with that, I can just be 100% focused on writing and recording and not have to worry about anything else. 
It's another right. funny thing to hear that, you know, oh, I don't want to annoy, you know, the guy on the bus watching a movie, like w- another like rock star thing that wouldn't have been said in the eighties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to keep it different. down, you know? <laughs> yeah. Dimebag would have just set, like set off an M80 right at Charlie's head and said, fuck you. We're partying Dimebag, right now. He probably would have had a full stack on the bus. Yeah. Right oh my head. gosh. That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's true. There's really not a lot of space. I mean, with me, even when we're touring, it's like, I'm lucky if there's an extra room where I can go with a mute. I mean, I play an acoustic instrument though, so it's loud no matter what. You know? Yeah, I remember uh, there were, we did an Ozfest. It was in 2003, and uh, Zach Wild's been one of my favorite guitar players since I can remember. He's a huge influence hero to me, and uh, that was the first time I got to meet him and tour with him. And uh, Matt and I from Shadow Spar walking by his bus. He's like, "Hey guys, come up!" And he had one of those uh, Marshalls little mini i don't know if it was a valve state or not but he uh had a marshal underneath his table in the front bus it was just cranking it had it had us in there and his kid he just had a kid his kids trying to sleep and <laughs> <laughs> but that's the kind of thing there's really not a lot of privacy on the road and just to do that you, you know can well, annoy people <laughs> but here sure. here's something you, you brought up a good point because if you've seen zach wilde play he can do pentatonic shredding so fast. I mean, the faster he moves that beautiful Pantene fucking hair, the faster his fingers move, and he does it for prolonged periods of time. He's like David Blaine holding his breath for 19 minutes. He does NIB for 19 minutes of just straight up and down fucking ridiculousness. So his kid might not be able to sleep as much because the ability to do that is a fucking Olympic-level guitar player. And that's why he's Zach fucking Wild, dude. Yeah, he's an ener- energizer bunny with, with that <laughs> pentatonic stuff. He just nonstop. <laughs> Absolutely. He oh takes God. a break. He takes a break when he's doing a squeal, you know. <laughs> that's like his rest. <laughs> well, that's a big so wide vibrato. Yeah. You mentioned that he's one of your influences, and I'd like to take it back so that maybe you can talk to some of the listeners who may not know you or your background, you know, kind of where you came from, how you got your early influences, how you learned guitar, like what got you interested in the type of music that you play and how you kind of formed your own guitar style over time. So, um, you know, well, when I first started listening to music, it was more 80s pop stuff like Michael Jackson, Hall Notes. And uh, my first rock band that I picked out myself was Bon Jovi. And that's when Slippery When Wet came out, like probably 86, I think it came out. And uh, that band, I fell in love with that band. Like, that was the one that, that did it in those videos at MTV. I was like, holy shit. This is, these guys are like superheroes. This is larger than life. And that's when all the, I hate the term hair metal, but that's what they call all those bands, like Rat and yeah. Bon Jovi. I, I just think it's, it's, I just think it's fucking rock and roll, but people got to label it. Uh, but that stuff, seeing all the 80s metal bands just made it, it was so over the top and they weren't even like human because you just see them on the TV every day. Every, playing arenas of 40,000 people. It just, I remember going to those shows as a kid and people partying in the parking lot. It just seemed like way more fun back then. Everybody was ready. It probably was. (laughs) Well, they weren't attached to their phone. They weren't tagging themselves in. Like heavy metal parking lot, the movie was actually happening. Because all all you could do was walk to the other car to see what alcohol they had or what drugs they had. Were they listening to Maiden? Were they listening to Priest? Were they, you know, and and then you made friends. And then if you got lost, your friend might have had a beeper that you could have called if you walked (laughs) down the road and used the rotary phone and put, you know, fucking five cents in. Other than that, you're fucked. Yeah, and if you were in high school and you 
threw up in your buddy's car or something, then you know they're filming it. You're the asshole on Facebook the next day, and everyone's yeah. laughing at you. Right. And at least you could get away with a lot more back then. But uh, yeah, yeah to, to go back, that that's the stuff that made me want to play. Um, and then so uh, when I started to play guitar, it's probably when all that stuff was thrown out the window and and, and grunge it like Nirvana <laughs> and stuff. And I was. I like all that stuff too, uh, um, but I still wanted to learn how to play leads, and uh, I loved the lead guitar. I always loved the solo before I even knew how to play guitar. I was always drawn to the leads in songs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that once that happened, it was even hard to find a teacher because nobody wanted to, to play that style anymore. Were you already exposed to music by your by your parents, or did you have instruments? Like, what what was the situation that you grew up in in terms of uh, music? No, no, I. Uh, we had a piano and they started me on that, but I just wasn't interested because I wanted the, the guitar. That's the, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's what Ricky Sambora and, you know, Eddie Van Halen. You and, need an extension of oh. your dick. Pianos to play fucking Andrew Lloyd Webber <laughs> phantom of the, uh, uh, of the opera bullshit. It's too hard, man. I can't, can't split my brain like that. Too much to think about. <laughs> but yeah, um, I mean, guitar seems pretty hard, but yeah. So, yeah, but but you no matter how good you are, like John, you can back me up on this, and you and you tell me if I'm an idiot. But like you know, you see a band like Children of Bodom, like that dude shreds on keyboards, but it still sounds lame to me. It sounds like a video game, and it makes it me take it not seriously. And he, and you I, can be the greatest keyboard player, but like my job when I play keyboards is to make it the least lame that it can possibly be. And even then, I know well, I'm playing keyboards, so it's probably lame. Well, now I wish I stuck with it because I would love to know how to play them, but. I'm having enough time still with the fucking guitar, so I got to spend as much time on that as possible. Right. So what the hell was I talking about? Well, just just kind of coming up with with music. So I, I maybe what was the the jump from like I want to do this to to getting into actually being serious about it and, and starting with like bands. Yeah. So um, then after that, uh, Metallica and all the thrash metal, and uh, that's pretty much how I started to learn how to guitar how, how to play guitar was through. Uh, the Metallica tab books. And, uh, you know, just going to high school and jamming with people and uh, started to bail some of my friends when I was a freshman and uh, ended up playing some local clubs and never stopped. I was actually in a band in high school. I was in a band with Adam, Adam Duckowitz from uh, Killswitch. Oh, yeah. For, uh, for a few years because we went to the same school together. Interesting. And you're, you grew up in Massachusetts, correct? That's yep. the connection here? Okay. Mm-hmm. It seems like that there was obviously a great music scene there. You know, we've talked to a lot of people that were from the Bay Area and San Francisco kind of in the, the 80s. And it's interesting, like the parallels between like certain geographic areas where like there's a really strong like music scene. You know, there are a lot of people that came from sort of these pockets. So, well, to give you some, like obvious- some, so to give him some context, we just talked to Alex Skolnick the other night from Testament uh-huh. talking about going around with Anthrax the first time when they were like, oh, there's other people that play heavy music. Oh, this is cool because he thought he was moving to Hollywood and he ended up in the Bay Area. And then, you know, <laughs> that's when all that shit happened. And he was like, wait, there's other people that like heavy music. And then, you know, this happened again in Massachusetts which is really cool because you like when you guys came out, like, I mean, I was in a band called carve, but you guys with like shadows fall kill switch engage. Like there was so much. And then of course, Adam produced so much awesome music that like became almost, um, you know, the calling card for, for Massachusetts, 
for like a really long time. We had hate breed, you know, as far as uh, the, just so much shit. Like, what was it like growing up in that in, in that wave of um, the world looking to Massachusetts actually carrying yeah, about it, metal? It's it's crazy now because I just thought that's how it was. I just thought that's mm -hmm. how local scenes were. Like the local bands when I was a kid were just as good as any of the touring bands with record deals. Um, local bands around here used to draw 300, 400 people easily. And it's just crazy. And, you know, we had Albert Mains, us, mm -hmm. Hate Breed, um, and, you know, On Earth. A lot of just cool bands, cool guys. And we just, we had a blast. And uh, I miss that. I wish uh, the scene was still like that. In, in Western Mass, it's hard to even find a, a club to, to go to. I don't think it's, it's Western Mass, dude. Usually I think I, that that's the world. Yeah, but if, if I want to see a concert, I have to go to either Whistler, the Palladium, or Hartford. There's we right. used to have we used to have Pearl Street out here in a lot of places, and now it's just not too many anymore. Yeah, I, I kind of caught like the the tail end of like what I you know when I started uh, playing out. I, I was real young. I was like fourteen playing in, in bars and clubs when you could still smoke and everything. And I was like, oh, this is amazing! Like this is rock, mm -hmm. you know, super loud, yeah. tons of people. And then w after five years of like when I was finally like cutting my teeth and like getting the hang of things, I was like, oh, there's twelve people here, and uh, yeah. I'm playing for drink tickets. Like exactly. <laughs> what the yeah. Hell? <laughs> well, yeah. I remember my first show. I, I never. Um, played a club before and actually our first show was opening up for a band called strip mine that had Sully from Godsmack in it. Oh really? Mm, okay. Yeah. We just had Shin and uh, Larkin on the other night. Yeah. He was great. Mm -hmm. Took a yeah. half ounce of shrooms on the show. It was kind of fucking bananas. <laughs> Shin is great. Yeah. We toured with him when he was in amen. Shadow mm. 12. That was like our, probably our second or third tour. The apocalypse. But, the apocalypse. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I was thinking like, Oh, it's going to probably be so crazy and packed and, you know, there was like 50 people there. And you're like, oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What do you think happened? Like, what, what caused that change? I don't That was my very first show. But mm. uh, I, I was I just thought, like, all shows would be packed. And that was, like, oh, my yeah, first yeah. reality of, you know what? Like, that, that's not the way it is. Like, it's not... It's not just walk into a club and, and MTV. Yeah, yeah. Well, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, it was like, uh, here you go, asshole, you know? And I go, oh, okay. Yeah, so, but do you think, um, especially with, like, you know, your your success now and, and, and all and the opportunities that you've had, uh, do you think you appreciate that more because you got to kind of come up in that club scene and get to see that it's not 100% glorious all the time? Yeah, for sure, and especially the way... Shadow Falls started out, we were, you know, sleeping on the band floor and sleeping on the hotel floors, you know, six, seven guys in a room. And, uh, like, I, I remember even our first OzFest, it, it, I mean, it, it took us uh, maybe, like, four years of touring to get to that. And, you know, and plus, we were a buy-on band on top of that. But I remember watching, like, all these major label bands, and it was their first tour, and they showed up in tour buses, and they got full road crew and stuff. I'm like, oh, you fucking dick, man. Like, you didn't have to do any of this. <laughs> like, you mean like Star Set that shows up with the 18 fucking LED screens? No, but and, no, but that, and, you know, I joined after that was the case, but I mean, they went through the same thing. I mean, van touring and sleep, I mean, sleeping same all with in Same with Trans-Siberian Orchestra, too, but you joined yeah. after that as well. It seems well, to be I'm a trend. A you know, listen, yeah. I get spoiled because I'm a violinist, I'm a string player, and those things are always added <laughs> when the budget exists, you know, you don't, that's, but that's why I appreciate it so much more getting to 
play closely with guys that went through that because I'm like, wow, we have it so easy yeah, for the schooled people that go to school and then you get a great gig versus the people that really have to hustle. Yeah, it's it, it's brutal out there. But uh, yeah, yeah, even like it's not like that anymore. Back then, in 2003, was you know you get a major deal and get thrown all this money and your first tours with Ozzy, but. <laughs> Now, now it's a lot harder. Yeah. No right. Kidding. Well, so what was, so you mentioned you, you know, you got into high school to go back a bit. You started your first band. What was the path from starting to play band, you know, in your first band and clubs and getting gigs to where you are now? Like, how did, how did you start Shadows Fall? Like, what was the trajectory from like your early days into, you know, getting into sort of a more major scene? So I was, like I said before, I was in a, a band called Aftershock with Adam from Kill Switch and Gaze. We were doing that, and he was a couple years older than me in high school. So uh, once he graduated, he was going to Berkeley. Mm. So when he went to Berkeley, he was so busy with that that Aftershock didn't really play too much anymore. And then um, Matt was in this local band, uh, a death metal band called Exhumed, and I loved that band. And then he stopped playing with them, so I was like, oh, man, I'd love to start a band with that guy. And uh, so... I sent him a demo of some stuff that I wrote and he was like, yeah, absolutely, man. He's like, this sounds cool. And then from there, Matt and I just started the band. The evolution of that. How, how did that go before, you know, from just getting started together to like the picking up momentum and steam and actually noticing. So that was around 96 when we started that. And then we had a first singer called Damien. And then maybe a, I think it was maybe a year or two. And then Phil from All Their Mains mm-hmm. came to sing with us. And that's when stuff started picking up for us locally. We were actually starting to headline locally, at least. And uh, travel a little bit. In, uh, not crazy traveling, but little tours here and there, weekend tours and stuff. And then um, things didn't work out with us and Phil. And we got Brian. He was in a band called Overcast. I always loved Overcast. They were my favorite local band. And uh, so once we got Brian, that's when uh, some record companies started to, to look at us. And um, so we sent a, a demo out of like four or five songs with Brian on it and Century Media picked us up. That's great. Yeah, and, then, that's interesting. and then from there, it was just stay on the road. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm and that- still, I'm, 20 years later, I'm still on the road. Well, not now. <laughs> so it sucks. <laughs> so it's it's cool to hear like the kind of how the band came together and it's something that uh, you you probably don't see as much anymore because of the lack of a scene but it seems like basically the cream rises at the top you 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 have a band and you start noticing other bands that are you know at that higher level and members of that band like I want that guy in my band you know what I mean and you start creating like a uh you know local band supergroup and then that's the the mm-hmm. kind of situation yeah, exactly. where you can that's exactly go. how shadow fall was like oh that guy and then we go well, you make mental right, notes now we need a drummer <laughs> yeah well you, well you always make a mental note like I, I i always say that i i knew that Corey played a 5150 and he was pretty good on guitar so i could always <laughs> share my guitar amp with him <laughs> so like when i found out he wasn't in the band anymore when i went to go drop off my ssl with his old drummer who's a crazy engineer i was like can you give me his number and he hasn't been able to, sh- to quit me since. No, <laughs> not. Well, that's more or less how Star set for him too. I mean, it was kind of like a local super yeah. group of people that were sort of the ex lead men of other bands. So 
It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense though because you do the cream rises to the top, and then you, once you have that all together and you get rid of the noise, you, you can be more focused, and people have you, you can tell that people have a more unified vision of of what you're trying to do. Yeah, and you you got to get the people who are dedicated too, especially in this line of work because I mean, when you're playing rock and roll heavy metal, you're not, you're not going to make it unless you go on the road and 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 just fucking do it every night. Yeah. You know, it's like the style of music we're, we were playing wasn't going to get on the radio ever, you know, so. Was what, was, just, uh, uh, what was the first real tour you guys did like for you? The first like making it tour was probably like, um, even though you're, you're not making it really, you're just, you're just living a little better. It's like when we got our first tour bus, but you know, mm-hmm. you're still not really making any money, but you're like, oh my God, this is great. I don't have to pissing a laundry detergent bottle anymore. I can use a bathroom. Like, you know, you know, drunk pissing all over your hands. But now, now you're just drunk going sideways back and forth on a bus, pissing all over the seat. But, uh, <laughs> but then it was, you right. know, it's great. You can sleep when you want. You know, you don't have to worry about anything. You wake up when the fuck you want. So having a tour bus is like, yeah, rock stars. Yeah. <laughs> but even though you're like, you know, you got a dollar fifty in your wallet. So, True. Right. But I imagine for, for you guys, you know, just the fact that, you know, you were doing what you wanted to do and, and you're getting, you know, the, if you got a label reaching out to you and it, there has to be that like, all right, we're on to something here kind of attitude. And then if, if you're out on the road, even even if you're, you know, pissing in a laundry detergent bottle, I'm sure that that was uh, <laughs> well, but had here, some here, level of excitement for you guys. Here's something to think about, though, because I remember when Shadows Fall came up and like to give you an idea um, you, the last tour with Dimebag Daryl, the Damage Plan tour was Damage Plan Shadows Fall, and I know for a fact, and it almost upset me, John, at the time that I knew it was a co-headliner tour. And you guys switched who went on, so at one point, didn't Dimebag Daryl open for you guys? Well, yeah, we alternated every other night. Yeah, so yeah, so like I want people to understand that you guys at, at one point had some serious fucking respect. That there, there was a point in time where there was a man named Dimebag Daryl and a dude named Vincent Abbott that would walk on stage, and they would go on before your band. So, like, yeah, that, even though you guys only had a dollar fifty in your wallet, <laughs> was the perception from people like, I mean, they must have thought you guys have made it. Like, what was it like on tour? People thinking that you were killing because yeah. you had the bus. Yeah, that was that was a little bit. That was probably like two years later, and things were just a little bit better. <laughs> we had two fifty in our wallet. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the the first night I'll never forget it because Dime is my all time favorite guitarist. I, he's my MVP. I think he he can write songs, he can write riffs, he can do leads. He's a, he's the full deal to me. Uh, so I always say he's my MVP player, and. Uh, and just his personality too. When I was watching those Pantera videos as a kid, I'm like, I need to fucking meet this guy. I need to hang out with this guy. Like, he seems right up my alley. So <laughs> when, when I got told we were touring with him, I was like, oh, this is going to fucking rule. So uh, we were playing in Atlanta, uh, Georgia. It's this place called the Masquerade, the first night of the tour. Oh, yeah. I've played there. And uh, Diamond Benny flew in. I think they, they flew in from Dallas. I believe they went to, uh, I don't know, they were like, saw like Van Halen or something the night before. So they flew in late, came in later in the day. And we're, Shadows Falls into the set. And I just hear a guy go, fucking turn it up, man. <laughs> and I turned around and Dime's just sitting there. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> this is awesome. So 
that that night uh, we didn't really hang out that night. I don't know why, but the second night was in Florida, and I remember Dime coming up to me and goes, "Hey, do you want to do some karaoke?" Because <laughs> the, the the place turned into a karaoke bar after the show. So I was like, <laughs> "All right." Class. He's like, "What do you want? What do you want to do?" So I was like, "Ah, fuck." Well, I got introduced to you through Skid Row because I'm a huge Skid Row freak. And the first time I saw Pantera, they were opening up for Skid Row. I had no idea really who they were. And uh, at first, I didn't even know if I liked it because it was the heaviest thing. I, I listened to Metallica, but this was like a couple steps up. So oh, the first I remember. time I heard it, I, remember. I was like just watching them like, do I like this? But like <laughs> the place is going fucking nuts. I'm like, yeah, I think I do. <laughs> so, uh, so then Dime and I, I'm like, all right, let's do some skid row. Uh, so I did, I did youth call wild, and I'm getting wasted with him. We're doing black tooth after black tooth, and I and I got on on a pool table, started knocking drinks over. I got on top of the bar, and they were about to throw me out of the bar. And Dime and his girl Rita were just like paying the bouncers, like don't touch him, just give him the money, like leave him alone, leave him alone. And then I don't know how much they paid him or anything, but I still ended up getting kicked out of the fucking place. <laughs> I remember like waking up on the on my like bus like table, like head down, like what the hell happened? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so just touring with Dime, shit, man. That that was one of the highlights of my life was spending six weeks with that guy, and just he not only. Was he one of the best guitar players and biggest rock stars there is for heavy metal? But he was such a nice guy, and I've never seen a guy hang around bars and buy their fans drinks. Dude, awesome. dude I always tell a story actually about Dimebag that I I fucking love because Damage Plan came and played um, the WAF indoor beach party, and yeah, afterwards yeah, yeah. they went to the Lowell Brewery. You know where I'm talking, and yeah. I I ended up uh, winning three hundred dollars off Vinny playing some air hockey. It was a fun time. <laughs> and there was a back room where like, I think it was the guys from drowning pool. Mike Mangini was there for some fucking weird reason. It was like the damage plan <laughs> guys, whatever. And a, 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 a mistress Carrie, and then a bunch of hangers on. And at the end of the night, um, the cops come in because everyone had been drinking like an incredible amount. And you know, dime bag goes, excuse me, sir, sir. <laughs> I was informed that the bands get to drink for free. And like, he's wasted. Like, like he literally had pushed a chick towards me and told me to draw uh, Ace Freely makeup on her fucking face with a sh permanent Sharpie marker, maybe five minutes <laughs> yep. before this. Like, well, so this, thing, this is where we were at. And, and like, I literally thought they were going to arrest Dimebag Daryl. They asked for his license. And I'm thinking to myself, does it say Daryl, like, comma, Dimebag? And, like, <laughs> and as they're about to, like, arrest him, he pulls out, like, a black card and throws it down. And he goes, I got everybody in this room. And, like, <laughs> and he paid for everybody, like, a $5,000 tab. I mean, like, literally, a <laughs> yep. bunch of alcoholics had been drinking for a long time, and he paid yep. for all of it, and, like, th like, threw it at the police officer, and I remember thinking to myself, that is rock and roll. As I turned back around to say hi to the girl and introduce myself that I had just drawn on her face in permanent marker because of Dimebag Daryl. Yeah, he, he was the ultimate rock star. Like I said, I'd never seen a rock star buy the fans drinks. Usually the fans are like, Hey, can I buy you a drink? And he's yeah. just doing rounds. Uh, it, yeah, just, he was more, you know, you're, I was hoping he was going to be who he was and he was more than 
I wanted. And I was like, he was the ultimate fucking dude. That's amazing. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. I, I, always, I will say, though, because you know my friend Rob Noxious, our friend Rob Noxious, <laughs> he's a great photographer. He was there that <laughs> night. That I was I I was going back and forth with Vinny doing the air hockey thing and, and hanging out with Dime and he left his fucking camera in the car and I'm like oh. I, I, I'm like I could have had these unbelievable like because Vinny and I are going back and forth and he's fucking calling me names and they've got like they just judged some like bikini contest so they got like all these bikini <laughs> girls around and like we're he's like fuck the Patriots and I'm like I don't give a fuck about <laughs> hockey you're like going back and we're just yelling things and I'm like. Rob, where's your fucking camera? No, nope, no, nope, there's no testament to this night other than the fact that I have to remember it. And it was hard to remember because I think it was seven and sevens what, were, were, oh, what yeah. were being put in my hand that evening. There's a lot of them. That was a Bobzilla, I think, uh, thing. He was just handing me seven and, yeah, and sevens. They had some black velvet all the time on that floor. All the time. I mean, I, that's, I don't need, I, there's no way I'd be able to handle it now. Oh my gosh. So when, when was this tour that you were talking about? What year was this? Do you remember? That was in 2004. So we actually, um, we left the, the last night of the tour was in Clifton, uh, park, New York. And they were just going home to Dallas to do some shows. So they, they had like maybe two or three shows on the way home. So when that happened, everyone thought, we were on the tour still. So I remember when that happened, my phone blew up that night. Like crazy. Enough. So people know, because like, it seems redundant, but maybe Siobhan doesn't know. And probably my mom who's listening, um, Dimebag Daryl from Pantera was shot in the face at the Villa Rosa, um, that, you know, in Ohio, um, by a fan, uh, a crazy fan. And he, and he shot, um, at, uh, Vinnie Paul, whose tech took a, a bullet to the neck and saved his, like, literally jumped in front of a bullet for Vinnie Paul. Wow. And, uh, you know, killed a bunch of people. And he was killed on site by an undercover cop. But, like, yeah, uh, I remember, like, the whole world changed um, a after that uh, as far as how bands interacted with their with their fans and i remember my phone my phone blowing up because i just hung out with him for my birthday vinnie paul had given uh us a bunch of passes and we'd seen him at the palladium and hung out and it was like what two weeks before two and a half weeks before that yeah. um so like it, i don't i remember waking up hearing that and then throwing up like literally thinking yeah. that, that was i i didn't even know how to process it like that was like yeah i mean i didn't think it was i was just like there's no way this is real and uh, then I turned on the news, and I was like, holy shit, you know? I was fucking just broke down. Couldn't believe it. So, yeah, I, I was like, I'm like, how would that happen? I'm like, he's the coolest guy. Like, right. there's got to be something wrong here. <laughs> like, he's the nicest guy. On December 8th, nonetheless, the same day that John Lennon was shot, which is right? just fucked up. So it's like a really crazy dark day now, because now you got Dimebag and John Lennon. Right. And Paul Lorenzo, our drummer's dad's birthday is December 8th. Coincidence? I don't know. I think there's some weird, trippy netherworld. <laughs> there's probably shit quite a few David things that happen on December 8th. I'm sure. And Shannon yeah. can yeah. interpret <laughs> through Nuno Betancourt's dream weaver. <laughs> Catcher. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, that's heavy. So so following that, what, what was life like for you after that? What, what did you go on to do after that tour? Um, that tour... Um, so that tour ended in 
December. And then, um, what did we do after that? I think, well, it's so hard to remember, but, um, no, I th- I, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think, I think we ended up going to Australia, but then I remember being in Australia and that's when we got like another milestone news for me was, um, do you guys want to go on tour with Slipknot and Lamb of God and do arenas? Which I'd never been on an arena tour before. Yeah. Right. So I remember like uh, Matt and I were roommates in Australia. We're like, what the fuck? Like, Holy <laughs> shit, we're going to play arenas. <laughs> so, yeah, and then <clears throat> that April, us Slipknot and Lamb of God went out. And that was, that was rock and roll, man. Like, we were all having a good time back then. And then from there, like, that, that was Shadow Small Golden Year, was 2005. And then after that, we went on tour with Ospets with Black Sabbath, Maiden, Black Label Society. And so, like, that was, like, my holy shit year. Yeah. Yeah. Was Maiden really yeah. better than Black Sabbath every night, like everyone knows? Well, this is funny because, like, Maiden, this is, Maiden was so on fire, they were only doing the first three records. So well, they're like, dicks like that because they because they have so many fans. They're like the Grateful Dead of yeah. of metal, where they could play a different set list every single night and people will love it. But instead of playing a different set list, they played the same set list for an entire tour to torture people. If you don't like the album, you know it, Benjamin Brig or Virtual Eleven, they'll, they'll you know what? I bet you Bruce Dickinson sitting going, I should sing every Blaze Bailey song on the next tour just to piss off everybody. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> he even acknowledges it. He does the sign of the Southern Cross, which is 11 minutes off the X Factor, and I don't understand it. It's like, dude, let's just igno- let's just ignore it. Let's push it down like the priest and the Cub Scout meet. Like, let's just push it down like the memory. Instead, Bruce is like, I'm going to sing the Blaze era shit. I, yeah. I don't get it. But that, that tour, too, like, that kind of brought them back to the U.S. to get a younger audience. Because I remember, like, not a lot of young people were listening to Maiden in that tour, and they were fucking just killing it. People were, kids were falling in love with them who never heard who they were. Ozfest is such like a, I don't know, like a happy memory for me. Like that, like that was the coolest show you could go to every year and everything. So, uh, do you got any cool backstage tour stories or anything that that happened while you're out doing that? Yeah, it was just surreal, man. I mean, uh, so many from that tour because you know. The, all these legends, like the, the first few days of Ozfest, I was having amp problems and I just kept fucking blowing my amps for some reason. I don't know why. Nobody could figure it out. And even all the techs, like, Iron Maiden's like, I don't even want to plug in my shit after watching you. Like, they're afraid <laughs> to use the power. Yeah. And uh, so I was just having problems. And, and uh, Zach Wilde was just like, hey, man, you can use my stuff if you need to. I'll, Whoa. So <laughs> I did a couple of gigs on Zach Wilde's uh, rig. It was just, you know, insane. Uh, I, I mean, if you told me that when I was 12, I would, there's no way I would believe that I would ever even, <laughs> never mind play through or meet him, but then be on the same stage and be able to have that chance. So that was a crazy moment in time. And uh, how did that match up to what you were playing? I mean, I mean, cause I, you always hear the story of it doesn't sound like Zach or this or that. Was it like to play through Zach's rig? Was it heavy absolutely, enough? Absolutely. So true. It, it, you know, it's, it didn't sound like Zach. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I mean, did he give me his broken amp? How come I'm not playing? Like, <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, players, it, it, I really do believe most of it is, is in your hand and, and the, 
in your attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like that, that was my first time playing, uh, probably only, only time I ever played my hero's rig. Uh, I don't think, nah, I played two dime stuff too. A funny story about dime. Uh, he was having problems with his rig and he had all this rack stuff. And I, I'm, I'm an idiot when it comes to gear. I don't know shit about gear. So I had a pretty simple setup and, uh, I was just using any type of cord that I could find. I didn't, didn't care if it was monster or planet waves. I was like, ah, oh, I don't, oh, it's a cord. Does it work? I'll use it. Yeah. And it's just like little piece of shit cord. And, and dive comes over. Uh, he goes, what's with that fucking cord, man? He, it looks like you got, would you get this with a Hondo guitar? <laughs> and, uh, and I just looked at him. I go, oh, it works every night. He goes, fuck you. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah. And then, on Ozfest, we were uh, just sometimes our room would be right next to Ozzy's room, and I could hear Ozzy warming up to a keyboard, you know, doing his scales, and it's like, holy shit! <laughs> like Ozzy's like next wall over. That's singing. crazy. That's something I <laughs> oh can't gosh. I can't picture. <laughs> yeah. The weird thing is with Ozzy, and maybe you can you could speak to this, but I feel like on the different Ozfests and even the different tours, that Ozzy's gone from absolutely horrifyingly bad to really good, to kind of in between, to horrifyingly bad. And this has been since the 80s, because if you watch like the, the live video uh, um, that he did with, with Brad Gillis, uh, it's uh-huh. totally faked, because if you watch any of like the, the actual stuff, like, he's totally off everywhere. And then, uh, but then in like, the 90s, when he came back with Joe Holmes, I thought he sounded sick when I first saw him on some of those first Oz, like the 97, he sounded awesome. But then I went out and saw Black Sabbath when they came to Lollapalooza in Chicago. Drove all the way to Chicago just to see Sabbath. I was like two fucking songs into it. Ozzy did not hit one fucking note. They said that Tony Iommi had lymphoma. I'm like, he's not going to pull a deal on my fucking watch. I'm going. And then I ended up watching the Black Keys. Ah, shit. I think uh, you know people have off nights. You know, you you, you probably yeah, hear every night decades. for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you up up till this point. Do you have any memories of moments on stage or interactions or something that really like made a change in your life or that you noticed a change in your playing? I'm just always curious to hear how people develop their musicianship. Do you have any like pivotal moments that you can recall? Um. Yeah. I, I mean. Probably that Ozfest when uh, you know I, I I could turn around on any given day and you know Zach Wild would be on the stage or Dover uh, Revolver was on some of the dates. I remember turning around and stuff sitting there with his white cowboy hat, you know, from his Paradise City video, and standing behind our drummer and just like holy shit, you know, <laughs> stuff like Hagen's right there or guys from Maiden and just turn around and seeing seeing these guys on the side of the stage that I've had on my bedroom wall you know since i was 10 not thinking they're real and then they actually you know they acknowledge you and remember like adrian smith stopping me in the hallway once saying, oh i heard you on the radio last night whoa <laughs> adrian smith knows who i am yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was the atmosphere like uh you know obviously you you're touring with with all these bands and all these people and you're but you're only playing for you know you're you're you know, an hour a day or something like what was, what was life like behind the stages with everyone? Um, that was whenever, like 
that was before everyone had iPhones and iPads. It was so like that was like kind of like the tail end where some bands are still partying. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the difference? Okay, so let me ask you this: so a band like Made It, okay, I'm wearing an Iron yeah. Maiden shirt. Nobody wants to see anyone else other than Made It. Unless you have like Metallica and Venom opening. And even then it's like, I'll show up for whom the bells toll, but as long as I don't yeah. miss any Maiden. Like, and then another band like Slayer. But meanwhile, you've played with Shadows Fall opening for Maiden, but now you play in Anthrax, who are considered one of the big four. Is there a difference opening for a band like Maiden when you're in Shadows Fall and maybe the older generation doesn't acknowledge you in the same way as when you come on stage opening for Maiden with Anthrax. Yeah, well, I think for Shadows Fall, we had it a little bit easier because we're doing Ozfest. So it's, it was such a mixed crowd. It's in a lot of radio rock people go to that. And I always love playing for the radio rock crowd because they're so enthusiastic and they just want to have a good time. There's not a lot of just arms folded, yeah. like, <laughs> you know, like, like a lot of underground metal can, they're like, all right, what, what do you got? You know, prove it to me that you, that I should yeah. watch you. Where the, the radio crowds is more like, all right, let's, let's have some beers and go crazy and have a good time. Uh, so it wasn't a, just an Iron Maiden show. Cause I think if it was just shadows fall Iron Man, we probably got fucking rocks thrown at us. <laughs> um, but then anthrax has more of that classic style and it fits more with Maiden. And uh, so the, the Anthrax did great opening up for Iron Maiden. That's, I mean, that was one of my favorite tours too. We did South America with Iron Maiden and we got to fly on their private plane with them. Oh, and, I saw. That's awesome. And on top of that, Bruce Dickinson was flying it. Yeah. So. <laughs> Does Bruce Dickinson like make sure that you guys know about your tray tables being in the upright and locked yeah. position? And it, it, it's no different than being on a on a regular flight, it's all the rules and everything. But the only thing is like Bruce Dickinson comes over the intercom and tells you what the weather's going to be like, how long <laughs> the flight's going to be. And, you know, he's like, you know, take a look over the left wing and you'll see whatever the hell is there. And you're like, I know this voice. I've been listening to this voice since I was 10 years old. <laughs> Can I tell you the disappointment I have with that though? Because What's you're that? on a plane with Nico McBrain. And I don't know if you remember this because I'm from a time where I used to go to media play and search through the import bin to find mm -hmm. all the Maiden singles. And there was this little series called Listen with Nico. Nico. Uh, where, where he would see, he would sit there and for 15 minutes he would tell tour stories like ladies and gentlemen and you obviously understand <laughs> the way he talked like he's completely the most he, he was like captain jack sparrow at yeah. Keith richards up times a thousand and he'd be like oh, one time we were in the middle of puff and like he, 15 minutes of this and there's like if you listen to it all together there's 150 minutes of yeah. nico mcbrain telling maiden war stories on the B-side to these, uh, to like the Seventh Son and the Seventh Son uh, record and all And I listen to all of them. And I gotta tell you, I love Bruce Dickinson. I think he's an orator. I think he's a great singer. But when you're sitting on a plane with, with, with Nico, I feel like he should be the one talking about the weather. Well, <laughs> the, Nico, the, the times I've toured with him, he was the most outgoing. Like, even from the, the start with Shadow Spall, he, he'd be the guy who'd just pop in and hang out with you know, we're fucking just watching 25 year old kids and he's coming in hanging out, telling us stories like this is so cool, like that he's actually doing this. He doesn't need to. He's, he's way beyond this. 
But um, yeah, he's, he he'd come in the room when we were with, when I was with Anthrax. Or I was, uh, he was um, come in with with the troop of beer, come in with t-shirts, hook you up, just over the top nice guy. <laughs> do you think that? Do you think any of the Iron Maiden guys ever wear the same Iron Maiden shirt ever? Hmm. Yeah, I feel no, like I they're know. on stage every night. They're always wearing a, a different Maiden shirt. And I'm like. <laughs> I feel like they cut that. Someone cut that up for them right before the show and said, "Here's a new one." <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they got enough money to get a, a new maiden. But is shirt that making night. it to you? Like, is that making it never having to wear the same band shirt that you know you charge fifty dollars to fans for? <laughs> I guess it, it could be a sign of it. <laughs> so, can you talk a little bit about uh, joining Anthrax and how that happened? Obviously, you know you were with your other band and playing. So what, like, how did that whole thing come about? Uh, that, I mean, that was another super lucky opportunity I got and it hit at the time I needed it. Uh, Shadows Fall, um, a couple of the guys uh, were having kids or about to have kids and got married and they're um, just didn't want to be on the road anymore. And we weren't, we weren't making enough work you could have that kind of stuff. You had to be on the road all the time. And then you had, and it was when you had to be selfish. You can't be selfish anymore once you have a wife and kids. So mm-hmm. it can't be like, well, I might make this much money or, you know, I might not, but you know, I'm going to go have fun. So yeah. <laughs> uh, it came to the point where they had to choose that path. And, uh, and then the anthrax lost their guitarist and uh, it, they asked me to fill in just to fill in. And I was like, absolutely. Cause I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall with shadows fall. So, uh, yeah, Rob, Rob, actually the guitar player hooked me up cause he knew he was going to, he was going to leave and he wanted to make sure that they were all set. He, he joined whole uh, beat for people that don't know Rob Caggiano, who's an amazing guitar player and Volbeat packs you know, they, they were on tour. Yeah. They're unbelievable. The draw and the radio appeal that they have as a band. That's pretty fucking heavy. Yeah. I mean, over in Europe, they're superstars, man, like full on arena rock star. But, um, he wanted to make sure that, you know, that they were covered and didn't want to leave them hanging. And he knew we knew each other. And so he goes, he asked me if I'd be interested. And I was like, yeah, hundred percent. And then I didn't hear anything for a little bit. Uh, I didn't know what was going on then. Maybe uh, like a, two, three weeks later, Scott Ian called me. And he goes, ah, I, heard, I heard you know what's going on. I go, yeah. He goes, hey, can you do it? I go, fucking absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> wow. And, and then so um, I went to Australia with them. I never even got to jam with them. Uh, it was just like I jammed with Scott a little bit. But it was here, learn these songs and just be ready. And Oh God, that first show! Holy shit! I was so you had no shaking. rehearsal or no? Just I jammed with Scott. Uh, I went to Scott's house, and he, we kind of we went over the riffs, and uh, then I got there, and it was just like I, how many I had people a lot. were you in front of in Australia? Well, that was a that was a club show to warm it up. So maybe I don't know, maybe maybe a thousand. Uh, but then the next night was Soundwave, which is like. 80,000, you know, because <laughs> that we Metallica and Slayer were on that tour. <laughs> well, at least you had a day just, to practice, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I remember, oh my god, I was just so nervous the first show, and, and you know, just 
nauseous and nervous and I had a, a live video they sent me so I would know how the songs ended and how they went segued into other ones. But, uh, oh man, it's just, it was constantly in, it was in my head of, I, 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 I couldn't even enjoy it almost. Like I was like, holy, sh- I can't sure. believe I'm playing with yeah. anthrax, but I'm like, what the fuck's coming up next? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so how, so how long of a period of, yeah. How, how much time did you have to actually prepare? Like, so I think it was almost two months. So it was a, a little bit of time. Thank God. Cause I, I learned stuff so slow. It takes me a while to, to pick up on things. So I'm not what, like they know that to me because they, if we have played a song before, a lot of times they'll be jamming in, in the dressing room and we'll be going on in like 15 minutes. And those guys will just start jamming on a song that they haven't played in a while. And they're like, John, do you know this? I'm like, uh, <laughs> like kind of not, not enough to do this. <laughs> like, can you give me a, a little bit? <laughs> like it, it takes, I don't know. I just, I learned stuff slow and I really, have to like get my muscle memory down and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know how these guys can learn songs in like, like, Oh, I learn a song a day. I'm like, Oh, fuck. yeah. Well, it's also going to be Never weird because with, with shadows fall, obviously you were playing songs that you guys were writing and, and developing, I'm sure. And so like, they're, they kind of had this organic like growth within your memory and everything. <laughs> and then you're going to a band, you know, where it's like, learn these things that already exist and like, and, right. and, and, and get and, that and, buried in your cerebellum. And, there. And, <laughs> That does make it harder, absolutely. Yeah. But even with Shadows Fall, if, if if they're like, "Hey, you want to play a show next month?" I would, I'd be like, "No, nah, I can't. I gotta go over this stuff." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let me yeah. ask you this, because I, other than a band maybe like Megadeth, who's gone through a lot of great guitar players, where people go, "Well, he's not Marty." Well, Kiko's really good. Like, you know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about? Anthrax has had a bunch of really great players. You've had Dan Spitz. You've had Paul Crook, who Meatloaf stole away. You've had uh, Rob Caggiano. Um, you know, obviously, <coughs> Dimebag himself came down and played on Volume 8. So it's like, you know, you're going up against these other guys. And as far as I'm concerned, like, yo, bro, like you fucking hung out and then brought Anthrax to a new level. I'm watching you guys on Jimmy Kimmel, and I'm going, holy fuck, people care about metal when it's Anthrax. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, the, the cool thing with those guys is uh, I'm terrible. I, I I'm not. A, I can never be a note for note guy. I could never learn somebody else's solos the way they play them. I I have to. They gave me the freedom. They said, you know, stick. You know, they obviously didn't want me to totally facelift the fucking solos. They want still recognizable to their fans. But uh, Charlie's like, you know, be yourself too. So. I add my myself into all those classic solos and I use them as a blueprint where uh, like Megadeth is a little bit different. If you go out there and you start messing with Marty solos or stuff like people be like, no, I don't think Dave's going to want well, that. You guys covered, fan, fan don't want that. You covered Ozzy and Ozzy's a perfect example of this because Zach Wilde came back in and he did, you know, and Jake E. Lee and Brad Gillis and all those guys all have interpreted Gus G have all interpreted the Aussie songs differently. And I feel like people have judged them based on how they've added their own flair in particular. Yeah. The Zach wild squeals weren't there before when Randy Rhodes was playing crazy train. Right. But I like that. I mean, I do I too. Like, I, Cause I like to hear the guitarist personality and yeah, the Zach wasn't, you knew the solo. I mean, it, I mean, to somebody who doesn't play a guitar, they, they don't know that he's doing some different shit. He's hitting the big melodies and, mm-hmm. 
The fast mm -hmm. runs he's adding his own stuff in, but I like when I can hear a live record. And I don't know like, if it's on a jukebox in a bar or something. I'd be like, oh, that's Zach. Oh, that's Jake. You know, you know who's playing the solo live. You, and they put their own personality in it. I like that instead of uh, just clone guitar players. Sure. Well, that's amazing that you have the opportunity to, you know, have your own voice because, uh, yeah, I'm sure it exists where people have to come in and just do exactly what was there. And you you're kind of oppressed in a certain way, you know? Yeah. I mean, that, that'd be a scary job. I mean, some some people could do that. I would never be able to be you have to play exactly the solo note for no. I, I just wouldn't be able to do it. But I could I can use it as a blueprint and, and get in the ballpark. And to someone, like I said, who doesn't play guitar, they probably would notice too much the guy who does play guitar but like well that's not how that's not that run you know they <laughs> still pick it out but I, I try to stick in the area and, and the theme of whatever's going on but then add my own flavor to it but you pointed out something really important because like we're in a whole world where all these guys are copycat and they can play everything at a faster bpm and they grew up in a time where everything's quantized and you have bands like animals as leaders and dream theater isn't even crazy anymore and i you're you're pointing out something that like i feel like is missing with a lot of people which is not having to play things so exact and so perfect but knowing it's zach or knowing yeah. it's jake because um those songs uh, you know listening to an 84 bootleg with jakey lee is a different feel um even hearing mr crowley than hearing it with randy rhodes and hearing it with zach wild and they're different songs to me and they mean different things and i like different things about them and yeah. when you have all these new players that are playing like note for note perfect, it goes back to classical where they're just like being told exactly what to do. And it's like, that's just Chopin versus saying, wow, that's Zach doing Mr. Crowley. Yeah. I mean, I, like, like I said, uh, I love to, to be able to tell the difference between the guitarist and I don't care. Uh, like I, I love when, when Glenn Drover was in Megadeth. I love his playing so much. I love, and I could tell. I him love him. Glenn. You know, I, I and he just got this super slick feel, and you know, just right on. And he's I, Canadian, I could, dude. That's why. <laughs> Ask anyone in Lost Symphony. We have Kelly. Car we have I can't. Kara Luck. We have Kelly Kara Luck, and he's from Canada. And actually, he got uh, n uh, noticed by Glenn Drover because he actually had notated a Glenn Drover solo, and Glenn had admitted to him that he had no idea if it was right or not. But Sean <laughs> yeah. had asked people if, if anyone could do it, and, and Kelly's like Steve Vai-level Frank Zappa nerd, yeah, yeah, where he can like notate insane. anything. So he actually sent Glenn Drover probably perfect because his, yeah. like, his, his handwriting is immaculate. Christine, his solo. Yeah. yeah, and Glenn Drover's like, holy shit. And that's because those guys in Canada there's something up there because yeah, Kelly, yeah. you heard, I, me I remember when we played you uh, lost symphony for you and Matt, because you came down and you're like, all right, like, let's do this. And I, I saw a little bit of fear in your eyes and it made me very happy. <laughs> oh, that stuff's like guys like that are on another planet. Like, I don't even know. I'm like, you think you play guitar and you watch somebody like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's funny that that that, that always happens like there's always someone at the next level and it's just like oh, yeah, you might as well just enjoy what you're doing because you'll, you'll you know no matter how amazing you are there's always someone that you're like, 
Yeah, I got, son of a bitch. I, especially now, like yeah. now you go on Instagram and there's a t- nine-year-old kicking the shit yeah. out of you. I was, yeah, I was just gonna say that, <laughs> especially with violinists, it's like there's a four-year-old that wins some international violin. Well, that's yeah. because you're breeding children now with the internet and like Clockwork Orange, Stanley Kubrick style, putting kids in front of Van Halen bootlegs <laughs> and making them listen to music as they fall asleep, and you're operantly conditioning these kids to be like virtuoso players. Good for you. Yeah. What's what's important yeah. to me is making me feel a certain way. And all a child who's seven years old makes me feel playing eruption better than me makes me feel is upset for them that they don't have a childhood and that someone has tortured them into playing Van Halen this well. And <laughs> that I don't spend any time to get better and that I should be ashamed of myself because yeah. America and people well, think that I'm the best and I'm not even I, close to the best. I think too sometimes uh, people's flaws on, on guitar, like make them, give them their, their own style. Because, yeah. uh, you know, like I, I, certain guys are awesome alternate pickers or like, uh, some guys are awesome legato. You just have to kind of run with what your strength is. Or, uh, my, my thing is my ear is not that great. So whenever I would try to learn a song, I'd mess up and I'd write my own stuff. And now I just go off like, well, that's, that's kind of cool. That sounds cool. I'll just, Stop trying to learn that now and just keep going with this. Very cool. Hey, we're uh, we're up at the end of this first hour here. Um, so, John, thank you. Uh, obviously, I think people can find Anthrax and Shadows Fall, but but why don't you, you <laughs> say again? Uh, is it Living Wreckage is is the new band. Yeah. So, Living Wreckage. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, and we should have new music. I mean, a song might drop. I don't know how long this will take to come out, but maybe by the time this comes out. People will be able to hear uh, a first first taste of what it sounds cool. like, and we'll make well, sure ask, if that's the me, case, we'll have a link in the description. For sure. Let yeah. me ask you: Are is the review that I read by Tim Osmond accurate about this new record? Because if so, let's let's dive into it in the next in the next episode. Well, I, I, I want to hear. It. Do you know who Tim Osmond is? He's the oh, greatest yeah. record reviewer of all time. John, can you tell him? Yeah, Tim Osmond from Iron Gates Magazine. He's a he's a stickler too, man. He doesn't like a lot of stuff. So that's what our people cl- don't know. Our, is that's cl- actually Matt Bashand. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's Matt Bashand from Shadows Fall and their first review. He wrote it. And in fact, one of my greatest <laughs> possessions is a signed Shadows Fall thing from Tim Osmond and John Denae. And with that, you've been 2020. John, I hope you'll stick around, make yourself another drink. And everybody else, you should subscribe and go listen to Living Wreckage. And we'll see you for part two with John. Thank you for listening to this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number eight, going way back to Jason Costa from All the Remains. Check it out. So, you know, being in Diecast, playing that, and then just, uh, it was a hard, the hardcore scene is a lot different than the metal scene also. So there was a lot of violence. Uh, I could literally tell you a million stories about very, very violent things that, we were involved in and like at shows or just like well, oh, everything yeah, we everything. were like a, we, we weren't a band we were a fucking pack of wolves we weren't we, and when you're on tour with other hardcore bands you bond with them you are a pack of wolves wow and if anyone messes with you or whatever and, you, and your kids and you're full of angst and you're not getting paid and you're surviving on pizza sure. and stealing beef jerky from 7-elevens for, to get your protein I would totally just rob 7-elevens to, uh, not literally rob but steal and everything else. I had no. I didn't have a lot of money. I was running up all kinds of credit card debt. The vans were falling apart. We were stealing, stealing parts of vans. From, 
I won't say from where and stuff, but it's okay. Ben told a whole story about it, how he basically conned someone into stealing a guitar for him on one of our previous episodes. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.